12, 14. Uh, wise words bring many benefits, and hard work brings reward. Great. Sounds pretty, pretty good. The city of Jerusalem lay, it crumbles. The walls were down. There was no longer protection for this city state. And when a guy named Nehemiah heard about this, it made him really sad. He was sad for a lot of reasons. And so through a series of steps that we'll talk about today, he went through this process to rebuild the walls around the city. And he led a group of people, and day in and day out, they built and they worked on it. And there was opposition that came, and they resisted the opposition. And God helped them rebuild the walls. And in 52 days, their world was changed. 52 days. And it was all because God was stirring up something in someone. And Jews who had been in captivity and had lived all over the world returned home, and their world was different. 52 days. I believe that God is stirring some things in our church family. And I therefore believe that God is probably stirring some things in your hearts. And I have some vision about that, and I'm going to talk to you about that a little bit more today. Um, have you ever been on a bus? I want to talk about inertia for a minute. Have you ever been on a bus that was so full there's not a seat for you, so what you had to do was you had to stand somewhere and hold that strap or grab one of the rails because you knew the minute that the bus driver, the bus driver doesn't care whether you're seated or not. I mean, they care, but I mean, they don't, I mean, whatever. It's just like, it's like Parnelli Jones or something. They, they hit that throttle, and if you're not holding on, you're going to all of a sudden be sitting in somebody's lap. Right, And then when the bus comes to a stop, if you don't hold on, brace yourself, you're going to go tumbling forward. Well, that's something Isaac Newton described. He calls it inertia. And uh, he, he said, basically, the velocity of a body remains constant unless the body is acted upon by an outside force. In other words, if it's in motion, it's going to stay in motion. If it's at rest, it's going to stay at rest. That's your physics lessons for the today. You know, there's not going to be a pop quiz or anything. For those of you that are going, wait a second, that's not why I'm here. Hold on. We're going to get to this inertia. Here's why do we bring that up? Because the laws of inertia apply equally to spiritual conditions as they do to physical conditions. Equally true. You and I tend to stay exactly where we are. We tend to stay exactly where we are. Don't change. We kind of resist change because it's safe and it's comfortable. It might be difficult, but we know this. And the change takes us someplace. We're not too sure about it. So we tend to honor the law of inertia spiritually. Same thing. The thing is, is that we stay there until some outside force acts upon us. And you realize there are outside forces acting upon you all the time. They're around us everywhere all the time. And there's friction. I mean, I'm not talking about midichlorians, for those of you that are Star Wars fans. Thank you for, for being with me on that. I'm not saying that kind of force. But all around you, there are these things pushing you and suggesting and pulling. And then there's friction. There's all these forces that want to, to apply spiritual inertia and change your spiritual inertia. These Jews who had once been captive returned home. 52 days their world was changed. And I believe God is stirring some things right here. For those of you in this room who were the homecoming queen or king, or you were the president of your class, or you were the star athlete or the head cheerleader, I want you to know God can still use you, okay? <laughs> God can still use you. But God specializes in using ordinary people like you and me, like most of us. 
The ordinary people are the ones that God specializes in using. And that uh, ordinariness turns out to be a major driving force in the story about this guy named Nehemiah. He was, he was the cupbearer to a king named Artaxerxes. What does that mean, cupbearer? Does that mean he hands him a cup? Yeah, he hands him a cup with something in it. What it really means was he was the crash test dummy for poison for the, for the, for the king, right? Any, any wine the king was going to have, any, whatever the king would have beforehand, this guy would taste it. And if it was poison, guess who dies instead of the king? So it's a great job if you like the Food Channel because you get the best of everything. The best wines, the best foods, cooked by the best chefs and prepared in the best places. It's a pretty rocking deal right up to the point that somebody decides to kill the king with poison. Then the benefits kind of like fell out. The, the floor fell out. Cool job. But so commentaries would say about this guy that he was basically a glorified butler. Okay, it doesn't sound like a big majestic position, but he was an ordinary guy. And one day he heard something that bothered him so deeply that he decided to do something about it, and then God changed his world in about 52 days. So Nehemiah, it's in the Old Testament, uh, starting right in chapter 1, verse 1. And if you don't have your Bible, you know I'm going to help you out here. So here we go. Uh, Nehemiah 1, verses 1 through 4. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, whatever that is. Uh, okay, Kislev is about November, December, about the time that we're putting up our Christmas tree and getting stuff ready. Um, and Kislev comes from uh, the root word that means positiveness or hope. So they called it sometimes the month of dreams. Now, interesting comment. Um, I've already derailed myself. I'm off on this little rabbit trail. But I love these kinds of things because I think to myself, why in the world did the Holy Spirit think that this was important enough to include the month of Kislev in this scripture? I don't know. But there's, there's never a no reason. There's always a reason. I think there's probably a couple. Month of dreams. There's something positive, something hopeful coming. And there's also something factual that we're going to talk about a little bit later. Okay, so in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in modern-day Iran, Hannah and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah and with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Verse 3, they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now, here's the deal. Nations then were actually city-states. It was a city, and they would put a wall around their, their, their city, and that's what protected them. This was the year is 449 B.C. The wall has been broken down and gone for about 140 years. Here's what it would be like for us, if this was us. Um, we have no protections and defenses for our country, going back from today to about the Civil War. Think of it like that. Think of all of the world conflict that's gone on, and we would be sitting open and defenseless in that whole time. Or here's another one. Um, you know, we like to complain about the TSA, but I appreciate them. Right? If you fly, imagine our country having no TSA since 9-11. Anybody that wants to get on any plane, any time, no screening, no protection, no nothing. No, no, that's what this, <laughs> those of you that fly a lot are going, yeah, I'd like to try that. No, you really wouldn't. You really wouldn't. And, uh, you know, we like to complain. We don't like to be in the lines, and we don't like being frisked, and we don't want to stand there and have, we don't want all that stuff, but we like the fact that there is a wall that protects us. We like that. We need it. They didn't have it. 
And after 140 years of this, the people are discouraged. When raiders would come in, there was no protection. They would take their stuff. They felt put upon. And pretty soon they're saying, you know, what's the deal, God? Why have you abandoned us? How did this happen? Now, here's some historical background. If you read the Old Testament, you're going to read story after story after story where the children of Israel decided to disconnect from the peer and drift away from God. They would make choices, and they would start to drift. And that spiritual inertia that I described to you before would be in effect, and they would drift and drift and drift. The thing about spiritual drift away from God is that no matter how slowly you're going, it always continues until some sort of positive energy is applied. It just starts and it never stops. So these people had this habit, it's pattern after pattern in the Old Testament, of allowing themselves to get comfortable in life, disconnecting from God. They can do it just fine without him. Thank you very much. I'll call you if I need you. And they would drift away from God. And all of a sudden, they would find that they have drifted so far, they've drifted right out of his covering and out of his protection. And all of the stuff that he had been holding back and all of the people that he had been protecting them from, they were now out there. And these things were going on. In the meantime, you can see in Scripture also, he keeps tossing these lifelines, come back, come back, and they would just refuse it. He didn't withdraw. They moved away over and over and over again. Years later, after, uh, after they, had been, uh, they had been put upon by, by uh, the Babylonians, and the, when the Babylonians came, they attacked the city, they wiped it out, they took the people captive, they destroyed the place. Years later, Persia became the dominant force in the, nation, in the, in the region, and they allowed some of the people to return. Um, and that's what, what Nehemiah was hearing about. Some of those people returned there, but there were still no walls. And so he heard this, and it just was too much, and he was distraught. One man, a cupbearer, a glorified butler, an ordinary guy, has a Popeye moment. What's a Popeye moment? You know Popeye, right? Do they even show Popeye on TV anymore? I mean, I grew up on Popeye. Popeye, Popeye was this sailor man, and um, he would be okay and put up with life, and then when he really needed it, he would eat some spinach of all things, and you know, big muscles, you know, bigger, you know. And um, he had this really ugly girlfriend. <laughs> I mean, olive oil, you know, U G L Y, you ain't got no alibi, ugly. Okay, she was bad. <laughs> and he would get to this place. <laughs> he would get to this place in every cartoon where things had gotten bad, things had gotten bad, and he would have this saying, and uh, you might know it. He says, that's all I can stands, and I can't stands no more. Here, here's Popeye. That's all I can stands, I can't stands no more. All I can stands, I can't stands no more. He's, he's basically, it took me a long time to get that clip into that video. Okay? I, I worked a long time at Popeye. He basically, Nehemiah is saying, somebody has got to do something about this. And it might as well be me. He looked at the condition of his people. It broke his heart. And he said, somebody has got to do something about this. And this might as well be me. 
So we're going to watch as God takes this very ordinary guy who draws a line in the sand and he says, somebody's got to do something about this. Might as well be me. Now, I want to go through, uh, as we look at this, I want to talk about three things that you will find about all kinds of ordinary people that God will use as world changers. And so let's take a look at that. First, the first thing you'll see is that, that they allow or they permit their heart to break over the things that break God's heart. And, and here, it's what Nehemiah did in verse 4. He says, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. Now, this is, by the way, the same thing that Jesus did. There are a couple places in Scripture that the Word talks about uh, public events where Jesus cried. He cried out other times. There's other times he cried than besides the two. But one of the two he talks about was when he was um, in Luke 19, 41, when he was arriving into the city on the back of a donkey. He, he sees the city and he cries. It's what we call the triumphal entry. We'll, we're going to come to that in a couple minutes. And Nehemiah, you know, he ugly cried. You know what I mean by ugly cried? Ugly cried. I mean, slobbery snot. You just couldn't stop crying. You know, women, when you wear the black, you know, ugly cried. You know what I'm talking about? This guy couldn't stand up. He's broken hearted. Now, he's a thousand miles away from here. He gets the best food. He's protected, all of those kinds of things. He could have thought to himself, well, man, that's too bad. Somebody can fix this. Somebody else can take this. Or he could have just said, you know, let me write a check. Or he could have said, you know, all kinds of things he could have done. And the thing is that I know I get good at insulating myself. I mean, we do. We get good at insulating ourselves from stuff that we see out there that kind of breaks our heart. But instead, Nehemiah opened up his heart and allowed it allowed it to break. That's a free choice. He allowed his heart to break about something. That means the insulation was turned off and the heat was turned up and he really let the Holy Spirit do business on something that God wanted to do in his heart. What what is it that breaks your heart? What is it that breaks your heart in behalf of God? What is it that God dislikes and you divinely take on that same burden? I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I dabble with Facebook. I don't spend a lot of time on it because I'm kind of wary. <laughs> just I think, you know, anyway, but every once in a while. So Thursday or Wednesday, sometime in the middle of this week, I, I just posted, what breaks your heart? And I'd say within, you know, 10 or 12 hours, I probably had 30 or 40 comments. And there were some patterns that started showing up. Maybe some of you saw it. Some of you commented. I saw that. I, I appreciate that. You're helping me prepare the message for today. And I saw some patterns. You know, people, people do not have any patience for things that happen to kids. You know, they don't like it when kids are unloved. They don't like it when kids are abused. They also don't like it when kids are entitled, overly entitled, because they know where that leads them. <laughs> this morning, I discovered... Um, this 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 uh, YouTube thing that's gone viral since Thursday, the the computer. <laughs> okay, look it up later. A man decides to uh, correct a Facebook problem with a daughter's computer, and um, he fixes it with his forty-five. But anyway, okay. So 
Saturday, in the middle of the day, 11 million people had looked at it. When I looked at it today for the first time, it was 18 and a half million. It started on Thursday, okay? So it's gone viral. It's, it's an interesting father who sits down and spends eight minutes. The point is that people hate, um, th- their heart breaks over those kinds of things. They, they, they break over broader ranging things, too, that all of us would just gasp at, you know, like, like um, sex trading, for, you know, slavery, and that kind of things that, things that go on that are just, that are just unthinkable, and unapproachable. Um, Lisa and I, a number of years back, a couple of decades ago, maybe three decades ago, in our church, had a prayer request, and so we were praying with a gal named Nell. She was thinking of adopting a baby from a foreign country. So we were praying with her about this baby that she was going to adopt. And some of you will recognize this story and figure out who, who I'm talking about. But she adopts this little girl from India. And she raises this girl, and she becomes a part of our, the church we were in, and we got to know her. And as she got to adult age, this, this Indian woman um, kind of was curious. Why did I come from an orphanage? Why had my family given me away? Just the kinds of things. She wanted to change her own little world. She wanted to get her, her, her sea legs, so to speak. She wanted to figure out. It's, it's understandable, right? So she starts looking into this. And she, she decides to take a trip, and she goes on a trip to search some of this out. She starts finding information out when she gets to India. Now, I'm going to way compress the story because I don't have time to spend the whole time uh, detailing this. She discovers some difficult things about her past. She comes back to the United States, and the Lord puts her in, gives her an intersection with a gal named Linda Smith, who happened to be our Congress representative at the time. And they connected and made multiple trips. And pretty soon, this young lady became someone who is, to this day now, she occasionally goes on these trips representing the United States State Department to these functions all around the world that have to do with trafficking in slavery for sex. And what started out was her heart being broken about something has turned into her changing a lot of people's worlds. And she's as ordinary as you and me. As ordinary. I mean, her kids disobey. Her, you know, her floors get dirty. Her just all, you know, the snow falls at her house and she can't get out of her driveway just like you and me. There's no big red S right here and there's no cape. She's as ordinary as you and me. Here's what I believe. I believe that if you will open your heart and you don't appease it, and you don't ignore the burden. I know many of you are saying, but and, here's, and the thing is, things will come up, and you'll say to myself, well, why doesn't anybody else feel this way? How come nobody else cares about this like I do? How come nobody else does something about this like? The reason is because God chose you. God put that burden on your heart for his reasons. So I believe that if you'll open up your heart, God can turn your misery into your ministry. Great catchphrase. I mean, I've heard that in the church before, and I thought, oh, how clever. But now I get that. God is saying he'll turn your misery into your ministry. He could take something that bothers you, and you'll say, somebody's got to do something about this. It might as well be me, and then your world is going to change. God uses those who allow their own heart to break, too. Um, second thing is that God will use people who kneel down to pray. The first thing that you see Nehemiah do here is he kneels down. Uh, verse 4 continues, For some day I mourned and fasted, and I prayed before God of heaven. For days he mourned 
and fasted and prayed. And you might be thinking, what can I do? I'm just this one little guy in one little church in one little city and, you know, the world. But what you can do is pray. You can pray. It makes a difference. Here's the math. God plus one is always a majority. Do you realize that? You and God together becomes an absolute overwhelming majority. Faith will do things with you in partnership with God that you have no idea about. You know, over the next few weeks, as we take a look at Nehemiah, um, we're going to be talking about some things because I believe the Lord is raising up a whole room full of leaders. And I think there's a reason why, and I'll get to that. But I think that the Lord is raising up a church full of leaders. And some of you are saying, well, no, 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 no. I'm a stay-at-home mom. No, you're a leader. No, I fix cars. No, you do that, but you're a leader. No, I mow lawns. Yeah, well, you're a secret agent for God who happens to mow lawns. You're a leader. (laughs) And we're going to look at how you can push through. Um, We're going to talk about opposition that comes up to those kinds of things because the minute you step out with your burden and you step out in faith, opposition is going to show up. Friction will show up. And we'll talk about how we can push through those things. And we're going to look at every distraction possible. I don't know if we can list them all. But um, we're going to find out that Nehemiah became this guy who became laser-focused. And when you stay focused on what the Lord has called just you to do, you'd be amazed what can happen when you bathe something through prayer and you partner with God. Um, We see 12 instances here of Nehemiah praying in Scripture. The whole rest of chapter 1 is prayer. And, uh, you know, God raised up this guy who was a praying leader. And, by the way, all good leaders are praying leaders. They're all good, all good leaders are praying leaders. And through his prayerful leadership, something that should have taken years just to get the environmental impact statement finished, something that should have taken years, took 52 days. 52 days. I'm grateful for the repairs on the freeway building down there, and I can, I can see why the on-ramp, you know, it takes a couple of years. I mean, it just does. 52 days they built a wall around a city and changed an entire culture. And what I think is that as the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about these things, you know, it's not, I, don't, I, I, I know he is. I think you need to let that process. Let the Lord process in your heart what it is that, what's going on. And, you know, I wrote down this question, why is this discussion so timely? I've been planning to, to, to get into the book of Nehemiah just because I love this book. I've been planning this for probably six months. I was thinking about it. And why now? And I, I'm just going to give you, I'm going to take a couple of minutes and depart from the message and just give you what I see happening to our church, what I believe where the Lord is taking us as a church family. Um, if you're a visitor today, glad you're here. Get to go along with the ride for, um, for a little bit of family business for a couple of minutes. Um, it's, it's a couple of things I will notice. The room's pretty close to full. Once the kids have gone out of here, there's a few chairs left, but we're pretty much on the full side. And this is, becoming pretty typical for us. And uh, the second thing I'd point out is that it's a little warm in here. You might not know this, but most churches, they turn on the air conditioning on Sunday because once people start worshiping, it creates too much heat. Well, and recently, a, um, we had, a, we, we had a, our compressors outside that run our air conditioning in this building went toes up. They're dead. It's dead. Can't be fixed. Can only be replaced. We've had it looked into. and I'm going to come back to that topic. So we're growing, and the leaders here are saying, what are we going to do about 
um, about growth. Well, there's several ways you can accommodate for it, accommodate that. And we've talked about things. Now, just hold your horses here before I tell you where we're going, okay? We've talked about things like, well, the children that are in the service take up a lot of chairs. You could make some room by, by having them not be in during worship. You could have double the chairs by doing more services than one. We talked about those kinds of things. And I think someday we may get to a place where we have to go to multiple services. I want to wait on that until we have to because it does other, does other dynamics to a church. But this issue about the children is it's paramount to me. I love having the kids in here. It's good for me. It's selfish of me to want them in here. But I really believe that for parents to have their children at their side during worship allows this rich opportunity for the children to be imprinted with something that is so godly and so needed. And these kids that are in here are different on Monday at school. They're different the rest of the week. And their lives are different. That I'm just going to hold on to them. I'm not letting go along with I, <laughs> I want the kids to stay in here during worship. I really believe in that. So we have this dilemma. We got too many people. And I watch. I watch from week to week. The Lord, I think the Lord is calling people, drawing people from our neighborhood here. I have phone calls this week and the last week and the week before from people who have dropped in once. <laughs> you know, one of these guys described our church and I can't give it to you literally because it's a little too coarse for <laughs> pulpit talk. But he described our little blank church by the railroad tracks. And I love that. It was, <laughs> it was true. And it was sincere. And it was just who the guy was. He said, I'm just going to try it out. So he comes and he experienced completely unexpectedly your love. Your authentic desire for fellowship with each other, your desire to worship, he, authentic, he experienced something, and he's not, I keep hearing that. And I see people that the Lord is drawing because they're brokenhearted and there's things going on in their lives and they just need to get in the house of the Lord. And they, they want to share something that you and I get to share in, the presence and the power of the king. So what are we going to do? We're going to do something. And um, so, you know, bunch of us leaders put our heads together and make a rock pile. <laughs> so we focus our pea brains. What should we do? And um, we're taking a look at doing some things like um, we can expand the sanctuary by knocking out a couple of walls over here and adding quite a few more chairs. It's interior remodeling. It doesn't have the huge expense of, you know, changing the footprint. I don't know. We're, we're looking seriously at doing that. Now back to the HVAC. The heating and air conditioning. It doesn't work right now. What are we going to do? Well, we could just fix it or we could fix it with a mind of where we're going to go as a church, making room for more people, which makes more sense to us. Of course, it costs more dough. Praise the Lord. We have enough money and savings to do it. You know, a year ago, we had more money and savings. And last spring, the council... And I, we just together in prayer, we said, you know what? It would seem good to us, to the Lord. Let's pay off our debt. Let's pay off our mortgage. So we did. Church is debt-free. How's that sound? I mean, that's really good stuff. And then, praise the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I had enough money and savings at home to say, hey, honey, let's pay off the house. <laughs> Someday. So, um, but we did. And money is kind of, we saved. So we got money saved up enough. And, you know, we... There's lots of things you can do with money. It's saying, hey, use me, use me, right? Right? <laughs> but we, gotta take, we have to take care of you and the building. So we have to spend some money on the HVAC. And the question is, what do we do? Well, we're going to go a little further because we want to 
We want to prepare ourselves for where we're going as a church. What's all that got to do with Nehemiah? Nehemiah was an ordinary guy that the Lord raised up to make a difference as a leader. And I see this intersection for what's going on with us as a church family. I see this intersection. You know, we're not a church with a great big menu of 47 ministries to offer people. They're there. But as a leader, Lisa and I have talked about this, prayed about it. Who are we? Who has the Lord raised us to be? What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to be? I don't feel like I'm supposed to womp up a bunch of, bunch of ministries because the church should have them, and then i got to motivate people to do that. Instead, I'm thinking, you know what? There are a lot of those that we should be as a church providing, and the Lord's going to raise them up. <laughs> yeah. Every one of you that's nodding your head, that's a contract with God. You realize that, right? <laughs> the ones that held their heads still are so glad. They're going, oh, God. it's a win. Okay. The, uh, <laughs> the Lord uses ordinary people who permit their hearts to break, kneel down to pray, and the third thing, he uses people who stand up to act. After spending all this time in prayer, he didn't continue to spend all his time in prayer meetings. He went, he went to King Artaxerxes, and he said, I'm distraught over this. Now, that's a pretty big deal. He says, I want your blessing. I want you to release me. Because where Scripture says there, it says, Nehemiah was dreadfully afraid for good reason. Here's the deal. These kings were pretty insulated from trouble, okay? They, they were insulated from, at least at an interpersonal level. If you came to see the king, you better have one of these, right? Because if the king had a bad day, and you were the last thing that he needed to see, and you pushed him over the edge, he might say, off with his head, and that's what they would do. So he was dreadfully afraid because he was distraught, but he couldn't put on the act. He had pretty good reasons. He goes in there. And uh, I think, obviously, that the Spirit of God had to have been in there. Let's take a look and see what happens. Uh, Chapter 2, starting in verse 3. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Okay, he butters them up, you know. My, you look handsome today. Have you lost weight? (laughs) You look so young today, you know, whatever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins? His gates have been destroyed by fire. I'm miserable over this, he's saying to the king. He's just saying this. The king said to me, what is it that you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. The very next thing that he does is he sends up this flare prayer. It's not a, okay, I'll get back to you after I've waited on this and prayed on this. He says this flare prayer, God, help out here. This is your deal. I'm trusting you. I'm leaning into you, Lord. Quick flare prayer. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you be back? It pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. And the date was March 14th, 445 BC. Now, the date's not in the scripture, but I have to tell you, we just now stepped off over the top. You know me and I'm and rabbit holes. Hold on a second, okay? Hold on. Thank you for your sensitivity. Appreciate that. But I'm going to go on a rabbit trail, and I'm going to take everybody with me. Can't, I can't resist this one, okay? So we're going off subject onto a rabbit hole, and there's a reason for this. You've heard me say before, this book is different than every other book. Inspired by God. Well, how do you know, Terry? 
Because this book predicts things that happen in the future, and it's right 100% of the time. And we just stepped on a trap door that we have to understand. So I'm going to take you on a little rabbit trail. We'll spend just a couple minutes on this. Um, but if you, uh, if you can get to your... I, didn't, I'm not, I don't have the scriptures to put up for you, but if you can get over to Daniel chapter 9, I want to show you something here. And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to detail the explanation, but I'm just going exp- to chart for you where we're going to go on this. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Here he is in this prophecy about the future, and he makes this comment. He says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Now, that's another way of saying 70 groups of seven. A week is seven. In this case, it's 70 sevens. 483 is the math, 70 times seven. And they're talking about time units of years, 483 years. So 70, 483 years are determined for your people and your holy city to, furnish, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make a reconciliation. There's this backlog of time that the Lord has said, okay, this is, now, this is enough. It's going to cost the nation, and it's, here's the cost. And, okay, drop down to verse 25. Listen carefully to this. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. We just read that in Nehemiah 2, right? From the going forth of the command until Messiah the Prince. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven and 62, that's 69 out of the 70. That's the 483 years. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Okay, so the, distance, dis, the difference between when the king gives the command until Messiah the Prince, 483 years. That's 173,880 days. You can do the math. Okay, I'm not going to go into all the math right now. I'm not going to go into the difference of the names of the calendar. I'm just going to tell you that the date is undisputed in history. When did Artaxerxes give, the, give that order? The date is undisputed. March 14th, 445 B.C. If you march forward one day at a time and you allow for everything, leap years, all that kind of stuff, changes of calendars, this is not in dispute what I'm telling you. Scientists and theologians do not dispute this. You go forward from March 14th, 445 B.C., and the day you land on on your calendar is the day Jesus rode into the city on the back of a donkey. Messiah the Prince. It's not like within a year or a month or a week. It's to the day literally accurate. There are Jews today still waiting and watching for their Messiah to come. They haven't, they haven't understood this. What happens, you see that, you'll, you'll see what happens on that day and described in Luke 19.41. I'm going to read this to you. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. Remember, we looked at that before. Jesus is crying. He looks at the city. Here's what he says. If you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. He's basically saying, he's crying because they should have known that was the day that the Messiah would show. It was already in scripture. Remembering that 
all these guys that, that we hear about in the New Testament, the, disciple, the disciples, the apostles, all of them, they didn't have the New Testament to teach from. They only had the Old Testament. And the Old Testament talks all about Jesus. I heard one guy describe the, 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 the Bible is God's plan for you and for me. In the Old Testament, it's concealed. And in the New Testament, it's revealed. That's, those are, that's great teaching. And I, I wish that, well, I would have thought that up. The point is that here's this trap door, this rabbit trail. I wanted to show you one more reason why I believe this book is inspired by God. Who else can predict the future and be right on 100% of the time about something? So the Bible authenticates itself right there. It proves that it wasn't written by just writers. It was written by God. So it authenticates itself, and now it authenticates Jesus as the Messiah. And Jesus goes on now, if we follow that trail a little bit further, and he says, For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. That's what Jesus said. That's why he cried as he rode into the city. And 37 years after he was crucified, the Romans were tired of the rebellion and they decided to, to take care of it. And the Romans' 5th, 10th, 12th, and 15th legions under Titus Vespasian surrounded the city of Jerusalem. And there was a siege and the war lasted two years. And some theologians, some historians say that 1.6 million people died. And finally the city fell. And one of the soldiers lights fire to the temple and it burns down. And Titus Vespasian is ticked because he didn't want it burned. He wanted them to go in there and get all the gold implements that were in the, the temple. He wanted the gold. And he ordered his men, you take that place apart. And they literally took the temple apart, stone by stone by stone. And not a single stone was left on another. And Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled to the stone. To the stone. <laughs> and Daniel chapter 9 that talks about the 70 weeks, 69 of them have been accomplished and there's still a week left in the future. And you hear references to the revelation and you hear references to the tribulation and that's a rabbit trail that's way longer. So let's go back to where we, let's go back to where we, <laughs> where we were, Nehemiah chapter 2. Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Send me so that I can rebuild it. He says, I'm not going to send other people. I'm not going to whine. I'm not going to complain. Why won't somebody do something about this? Because the God of heaven has burdened me. My misery has become my ministry. That's what he's thinking. Somebody's got to do something about this and it might as well be me. Now, I believe some of you either have already or you're going to get a vision for something that you should be doing. You know, maybe it's here, maybe it's somewhere else. Maybe you need to be volunteering at the Crisis Pregnancy Center. Maybe you should be volunteering to become a playground supervisor in a local school just so that you can care for people. Maybe you should be volunteering to help us put on VBS. Maybe you're supposed to help me with overseeing the construction of tearing down. Well, I don't know. Maybe you're supposed to be starting a home group. Maybe you're supposed to be starting a Bible study. for. I don't know what the Holy Spirit might be saying to you, but I know the Lord is speaking to us. And he's speaking to us for reasons, for plans that he has to minister to people. 
in these neighborhoods who have broken lives and they need the Lord. And they need the Lord. Somebody's got to do something. And maybe I'm the one God has appointed. That's what should be stirring in your soul. And I know you can start up with, but I'm not, and what if this, and what if that? No. God took an ordinary guy and did an extraordinary task. Somebody's got to do something about this, and it might as well be me. You know, we had flooding here recently, and a lot of you rose to the surface. Bad, bad analogy. A lot of you came forward and went to help people. Some of you did have to float to the surface. Somebody's got to do something about this, and it might as well be me. You took that attitude. I saw that happen. Kids in our neighborhood need coats. Somebody's got to do something about this, and it might as well be me. People are hungry at Christmas time. Let's gather some food and just give it to families in need and pray with them. Somebody's got to do something about this. It might as well be me. VBS, church expansion, youth programs, young marrieds. You know, somebody's got to do something about this. It might as well be me. These things are going to happen under the power of God because ordinary people, ordinary people, like you decide that you can't do everything, but you could feed one or two. You can do a Bible study with a couple. You can invest in somebody. God is going to speak to you, or he's already speaking to you. I just really believe that. I want us to be a church full of people who really care. I think you are. And I want us to be a church of people who care enough to turn around to the outside of our church and to care for people who the Lord would bring to us. If you're the best of the best, and everybody already knows you're a leader, I want you to know God can use you too. But God specializes in taking ordinary people, in taking ordinary people and going someplace extraordinary. Let's pray. God, um, may your spirit find in us fertile ground. May your spirit, as you give the gifts that you will, Lord, may your spirit find fertile ground. But God, this can be scary to us. So I pray, Lord, for faith-building moments also help I pray Lord that you'll help us to identify when it is that we're insulating ourselves from the things you're saying to us Lord may our hearts be open to you because somebody's got to do something and it might as well be us I pray Lord right now too this has been a little bit different of a message and God I know that there are people that came into this room today whose circumstances are just breaking their own heart and I just ask God for the comfort of the spirit to be upon them Lord where healing needs to happen in this room where encouragement needs to happen, where all of those things need to happen, Lord, I I just ask for the release of the Spirit with life upon us. I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.